Hello everyone, I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is my Unorthodoxy podcast. In this episode, I want to answer a question sent to me by Uta a very long time ago. Forgive me Uta for only getting to your question now. Part of the reason it's taken me so long to get to this question is that the topic itself is one of those incredibly not obvious things. The topic is martyrdom. It's a topic that raises questions about the tension between appearance and reality. In martyrdom, what appears is almost certainly not the whole story, and getting to the heart of the question means clearing a little bit of debris away first. Anyway, here is what Uta wrote to me. So here is one that I've been pondering for a while. This is about martyrs and the idea that being or becoming a martyr is something to aspire to. My first piece of evidence is from James Allison, who I'm sure you know uses René Girard to reread Christianity. He writes in Knowing Jesus, 1998, The intelligence of the victim comes from a freedom in giving oneself to others, in not being moved by the violence of others, even when it perceives that this free self-giving is going to be lynched as a result. The free self-giving is not a seeking to be lynched, but is completely open-eyed about the probability of just this happening. My second piece of evidence, Uta continues, comes from the writings of Ignacio Elecuria, who did just that, open-eyedly walking into his martyrdom like Oscar Romero. He asked on the last page of an article that exists only in Spanish, What have I done to crucify the people of God? What can I do to bring them down from the cross? What do I have to do so that the people of God are resurrected? Uta continues again, To me, what emerges is that there is this way of living that goes beyond following the teachings of Jesus written down in the Gospels, as difficult as that is already, i.e. following his example in a way not well understood by the church, not preached, not really available out there other than through hidden marks left by others who did the same. I think René Girard allows us to retrospectively read those marks intellectually, but for anyone who has been traumatized by being marginalized by any community, for example, bullying at school, how could they just let this happen freely to themselves again without being re-traumatized or triggered? their nervous system going into fight or flight or freeze, their body stopping them even while their mind and heart knows what they are trying to do. So that's Uta's first question, how to face up to martyrdom, which I'm going to filter through a more general question, what is going on in martyrdom? Uta then asks a second question, namely, how can the church respond to and unveil this mystery? What would the shape of this be? Are there words for it? Thank you, Uta, by the way, for such a lovely range of reflections and such a thoughtful series of questions around this issue. As you point out quite rightly, this is a mystery, and what this means is that we're going to be dealing with something not quite unknowable, but rather something endlessly knowable. It's something that we're going to have to look at again and again and again. The best I can do here is offer a few perhaps scattered thoughts on the significance and meaning and shape of martyrdom, and I hope I manage to open up the mystery a little bit rather than squeezing it into a rationalistic box. One way to deal with martyrdom is to consider it merely as a kind of conceptual framing of a group of events. And while this can open up some of the meaning of martyrdom, I think it is good to consider martyrdom in terms of the interplay of the mystical and the embodied 
we need something of a blend between metaphysics and phenomenology. The word martyr comes from the Greek word meaning witness, but it's significant that the word witness became strongly associated with those who faced torture and death because of their Christian faith. The key here is to recognize that something is happening. People are going through something very real and very terrible. They're suffering for their faith. But the idea of a witness suggests that while this is happening, this terrible thing, something else is being suggested or intimated. You might think of this through biblical metaphors like putting a light under a basket or breaking a clay jar so that treasure spills out. Martyrdom is Eucharistic. It retrieves the crucifixion of Jesus. Think of Christ's words, This is my body given for you. The this is my body part suggests the given for you part. Importantly, the gift is not external to the body but somehow in it. It is in the body's brokenness. The Eucharistic character of the witness is not outside it as if martyrdom were merely a metaphor. Rather, the gift is somehow in the suffering, in the body given. This is why it is mysterious, since it suggests that goodness overflows even through something that, by all accounts of goodness, should not happen. It is evil that is being done to the martyr, but even here, goodness overcomes evil. This is sacramental in that the body broken, the suffering person's embodied life and death, suggests not just the obvious appearance, but also something that transcends the moment of suffering and brokenness. The martyr's suffering and death takes on and echoes the suffering and death of Christ. It points to it as a sign that God would rather go through hell than take vengeance upon us for all that we have done wrong. The martyr then echoes this in a way, draws this reality up into her or his suffering and becomes a conduit for grace. The first martyr, of course, was Stephen, whose martyrdom is described early on in the book of Acts. And martyrdom was common enough, especially in the early days of Christianity, that it was often something actively desired by followers of Jesus. It was regarded as so powerful, such a testimony of faith, that early Christians wanted to bear witness to Christ precisely through that most ultimate of expressions of self-denial. In mainstream First World Christianity, this desire can seem rather strange. Nowadays, you might say martyrdom looks a bit different to how it did back then, at least in some respects. For one thing, most of us do not face that sort of terror as a result of being Christians. Even when we don't quite conform to the rules of secularity and might get a bit of pushback because of this, we are unlikely to face torture and death for our faith. Also, it seems that it is possible to be quote-unquote persecuted, not simply for being a Christian, but for merely being associated with a Christian or Christianized worldview. It is important to know, I think, that At the extreme level, statistically speaking, at least one out of ten Christians on this planet of ours experiences high levels of persecution, including facing torture and death. Still, even if we do not ourselves at this very moment face that sort of persecution, it is not impossible that you or I will be called to bear witness, to be martyrs for our faith in one way or another. When Jesus refers to the bliss or blessedness of the persecuted in Matthew chapter 5, he doesn't just frame it as a matter of literal death, but as a matter of any kind of pushback for the sake of faith. 
with this in mind, while I am aware that there are differences of degrees of martyrdom, the fundamental witness of martyrdom remains constant. In various ways, all of us are likely to be called to live out our faith against a particular consensus, and that is likely to come with some or another form of persecution and suffering. The trouble may be that you get bullied, or that you simply don't get the job you were hoping for, or that you gain a so-called bad reputation because of your convictions. The reach of secularization is significant enough, even in Christian countries, that it is generally fairly uncool to be overtly Christian. Human beings are by nature prone to conformity. Mimetic theory points to the fact that in pagan cultures, the rule of conformity would seek a cohesive whole precisely by creating victims and scapegoats. Christianity offers a different epistemology, though, a different way of interpreting and understanding what causes and others we should gather around. Instead of conforming to the pattern of the world, this mobbing and scapegoating structure, the idea was to conform to a pattern that sided with the scapegoated and victimized. This is what James Allison calls the intelligence of the victim. If you read something like Tom Holland's brilliant book Dominion or the work of René Girard, you start to get a picture that what we call the West is ultimately dependent on this Christian intelligence of the victim, this new epistemology, even in its distortions. There is no way to be in the West and not to be affected by the massive gravitational pull of this way of knowing the world. Martyrdom, in a way, is at the heart of everything we call culture. But human nature remains consistent, and what was a pagan trend towards victimization and mob aggression will always return in one form or another. To be martyred like Stephen, for example, was to protest against the violence of the mob and the state. It was an act of defiance, not weakness or delusion. The early Christians believed, quite rightly, that when put on display like that, when made into a spectacle while not participating in its logic, people would be confronted with the violence within themselves. And they would then be forced to see their violence as violence, not as some sort of justice, which is how persecutors usually interpret their own depravity. And this is precisely what happens around martyrs. Those who create victims are made to look ridiculous by martyrs, and martyrdom has often led to conversions for this very reason. The truth of their being in Christ speaks louder than the intentions of the worst mobsters. But keep in mind that for the early Christians, martyrdom was not just an individual act of laying one's life down, and in fact, was always seen as a manifestation of a total way of life. When Jesus calls us to take up our crosses, he is not talking about an occasional thing, something we should do once in a while. He is talking about how to live on the whole. In a world that tends to present us with moralizing, which is a focus on individual acts of right and wrong, it can be difficult to understand that virtue is about our whole posture towards being. The early Christians met in churches underground as a symbol of this in catacombs. And that, mind you, is what a church is. It is a tomb we enter into. And when we exit, that is resurrection. Every aspect of the liturgy is there to remind us of the structure, death first, then resurrection. It is an echo 
of dying to self and being reborn in Christ. The Decalogue's mention of the Sabbath reflects the same idea. Enter into the primordial chaos prior to creation. Enter into your own death so that you may be reborn. Sadly, some churches take on the language of the market and adopt pop culture as the dominant referent, which is really a mark of the suicide of Christianity. And I think this is where it is difficult for us to find a model for martyrdom in the church. It is a clinging to life rather than about laying it down. But still, traditionally at the least, the liturgy was there and still is there, I think, to remind us to die to self. It is significant to me in this past year that protests have been allowed while church attendance and funerals have not been. The West, I think, is a culture of clinging to life without the cross, without death, and that means essentially without martyrdom. The central message of martyrdom was always that following Jesus means following him with our bodies. Uta is right to point out that this goes beyond Jesus' teachings, and in fact, the Incarnation confirms that reality comes first, then ethics and epistemology and the rest. Jesus saves the world through his embodied presence first, not by first and foremost saying a lot of very nice things that we can put onto fridge magnets. Beware then of discarnationalism. Beware of seeing the victim as a general vague category. The victim is a real person experiencing real injustice and the call and the challenge is to treat others, specific others and not just general categories of others, as we would want to be treated if we were in their shoes. To follow Christ is to become an echo of his incarnation. This is what martyrdom begins with, to merely intellectualize the status of the victim and then to designate ourselves as victims and then exact revenge on so-called victimizers is not what the martyrs have modeled for us. The status of martyr then is not identical to the status of the victim as victimocracy conceives of him or her. Martyrs have surprisingly not considered themselves as victims. They understood their lives and especially their deaths as first and finally part of the body of Christ. By dying to self and then giving up their lives, they have participated in the salvation of the world. They were touched by evil but again did not succumb to it. I think again of Stephen, the first martyr. Saul of Tarsus witnessed his death because he supported it. One way to look at this, which I think would be the wrong way of looking at it, is to see it dialectically, in terms of a competitive marketplace of ideas, with the martyr Stephen's ideology being squashed by that of Saul of Tarsus. This, however, would be to side with the hermeneutic of the mob, and with the violent ideology of that young man's soul. To side with Stephen, and thus to see more clearly, is to adopt the intelligence of the victim, which is perhaps better understood as the intelligence of the martyr. This would be to see his suffering as offered up for the salvation of his persecutors, imitating the way Jesus offers his own life to ensure the salvation of the world. It is a profound picture of what it means to love one's enemies. This is the real gift of martyrdom, that the martyr does not see his or her life as a tragic thing, 
but as a kind of comedy, as a thing that can be offered up as an act of love, even for those who are not being very loving. This gift, I would say, is manifest even in so-called milder forms of persecution. If you have been mocked or bullied or maltreated for your faith in any way, your suffering is not for nothing. If you have experienced persecution even indirectly for taking your faith more seriously than others around you, this has not been for no reason. So now I can get to Uta's question. How could someone who is bullied let this happen freely to themselves again? So the presumption here is that someone has already gone through experiences of of being persecuted. Without being re-traumatized or triggered, their nervous system going into fight or flight or freeze mode, their body stopping them even while their mind and heart knows what they're trying to do? Well, this is a really good question. And I have to just say preemptively that there is a chance that people will end up re-traumatized. Martyrdom does not mean being exempt from suffering at all. We are embodied beings after all. And so won't our physiologies not sometimes hijack and usurp the spiritual ideal? The answer is that yes, this can happen. Should there necessarily be guilt that comes with this? Well, I would be more than reluctant to say you should feel terrible when your body responds in a particular way to particular stimuli. Trauma psychology teaches us that often in a state of trauma or immense stress, our bodies really do take over and this is often in itself a kind of grace. People survive sometimes impossible situations because their bodies respond in a way that we might term irrational. Stockholm Syndrome is just one example of this. St. Paul famously talked about his struggle with something like this in his letter to the Romans, that we sometimes want to do one thing, the good thing, and yet we might find our desire to do that good thing thwarted by the sin in us. As Paul writes in Romans 7 verse 21, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of that law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's worth paying attention to Paul here since we know where his wrestling with these things ends, with him dying as a witness to the grace of God. It's good to get a feel for how Paul grapples, really wrestles with his own situation as one longing to do the right thing while also finding that something within him subverts his best intentions. In the end, though, he submits himself to the work of Christ. That is to the way that Jesus saves us not just from our sin, but somehow also in it. Earlier in Romans 5, Paul notes that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. This is to say God's goodness still gets to have a bigger say than all the relativities of evil put together. This is in itself part of what martyrdom testifies to. When someone is persecuted for their faith and does not succumb to the pressure to merely retaliate, their lives speak of trusting that God's goodness gets to have the last word. And this applies even when we have failed, in some respects, to be martyrs. Our failures can be transformed too. 
Truth is, we are never the ones doing the saving at any point, and our failures, unbeknownst to us perhaps, may also become the means by which others can be resurrected. We don't just get to offer our best to God. We must offer the worst of it too. This is not to say that all that is rotten within us is a matter of indifference. It is not even to say that if our physiologies betray us in a moment of crisis, we should think nothing of it. It is to say that we should be willing to extend Christ's incarnation in our bodies, even by submitting to God that which we despise in ourselves. But again, martyrdom is a pattern that should be evident not just in the extremes of life, but in all of life, in the way we lay down our lives for others, hoping that the divine presence in and around us might do something through us that we ourselves could never achieve on our own. In the end, the very fact that there are and have been people to stand up against the tyranny of discarnationalism suggests to me that God's grace is at work. I would not think any less of anyone whose courage fails them or whose lives become tainted with sin because of the evils of others, which is precisely what happens in all conditions of persecution. We are assured that in the divine order of things, mercy triumphs over judgment. I would also say that something like a failure in martyrdom requires that we suspend judgment since God is at work in all things, not as their instigator, but as their redeemer. There are complications here, of course. There will always be complications. Life is very, very complicated. But having said all this, I can now answer the final question. How can the church respond to and unveil this mystery? What would the shape of this be are there words for it? My sense, which I've tried to convey somewhat already, is that the church does her best work in actually being the body of Christ, being the rib of the second Adam transformed into a bride and in giving birth to new life in the world. This means embodying not just the kind of self-giving of Christ, but also embodying the grace and mercy of Christ when we ourselves do not live up to the ideal that Christ is. My sense is also that we should learn from the life and words of Mary who reminds us constantly to let it be, to participate in allowing what is already happening to be a portal through which Christ is made manifest to others. The church will always do that imperfectly, but this should not stop us from aspiring to that sort of perfection. Certainly, where the church starts to mirror the pattern of the world more and more, instead of helping her members to fulfill the tasks and calling a sign to them, we are going to be in some trouble. This, in a way, preempts something I want to attempt in the podcasts I produce next year, God willing, which is to try and articulate as best as I can what it means that Christianity is embodied, that it is a phenomenological actuality. You all know already that the world is undergoing a deep crisis of meaning, and I think that the best response to this is to seek a deeper incarnationalism. But, well, that is what I'm aiming for next year. That said, we are not done with our Q&A series just yet, so I hope you will join me for the next one. Much grace and peace. <laughs>